This is a RomyCast. This podcast was recorded in March of 2022. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode, a returning guest, is musician, singer, and songwriter Jerry Legere. The website for this podcast is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 21st episode of Series 2, the second last episode of Series 2, I can tell you. You can find the first 20 episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes from Series 1 there at the website romycast.com. Uh, If you haven't already, please do share the podcast via whatever social media channels you're on. It helps other Beatles fans to find it, and that is ultimately the goal. Uh, I do this for fun. But it makes it a little bit more fun if I know that people are listening to the fruits of my labor. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Find out when new episodes are coming out and uh, what's going on. Uh, The handle is Romanuk Paul. Romanuk Paul is the handle. And there is also a Facebook group page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you will find it. Jerry Legere is a musician whose work I ran across a couple of years ago. Somebody put me on to an album called Time Out for Tomorrow, which is a, it's a very good album. Some of it was inspired by an old ghost town uh, in his home province, my home province as well, of Ontario. Uh, he kept busy throughout the pandemic, releasing music like a, a stripped-back songs from the apartment, which is just what it says it is. It's a, a lo-fi recording made in his apartment during the isolation of the pandemic. Uh, I had Jerry on an episode of The Walrus Was Paul in the first series, and we kind of developed a bit of a rapport, and we've stayed in touch, and, and yeah, I followed his music, you know, gave a listen to uh, the songs from the apartment. He also released a couple of singles during the pandemic. His latest record is called Nothing Pressing, and it is very good. To me, it has a real Neil Young 
the era of Harvest has that kind of feel to it, uh, or at least parts of the record certainly do. Uh, he reminds me, Jerry does, of Young at that stage of his career, around the time of Harvest. Gritty, Americana music, that's the genre some people like to put it into, Americana, a great lyrics, and a tight band to back him up. The new album was produced by Michael Timmons. You might know that name. Uh, It is Michael Timmons of the Cowboy Junkies. And the album is on the Junkies' own label, Latent Recordings. Uh, Jerry is a songwriter's songwriter, and he's been praised by other very good songwriters, uh, one of whom you may be familiar with if you're a listener of this podcast, Ron Sexsmith, who's been a guest on here excellent songwriter and a great story that I've heard Jerry tell. Maybe I'll get into tell it when I, when I chat with him here in a few moments. But he bumped into Ron when they both lived in the east end of Toronto. Jerry was working in a hardware store, and Ron Sexsmith came in, and uh, Jerry said, hey, you, you got to give this a listen. <laughs> Here's a cassette of my work. And Sexsmith has subsequently worked with him and become a fan. Uh, visit Jerry's website, jerrylegere.com, for information on him, his work, and what he is up to. Jerry, it is great to see you again and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, you know, I could talk about them all day and night. So mm-hmm. it's great uh, talking with uh, a like-minded person. So <laughs> Yeah, we could, we could definitely geek out on the Beatles for an afternoon, yeah. I, would, yeah. I would say pretty easily. Now, You've chosen to do Beatles 6, which was one of the Canadian or North American releases. I've heard you say that you were four or five years old when you became obsessed with the Beatles. So where did this album fit into that obsession? Well, um, well, there's two different uh, attachments to this record for me. Uh, one was in the car uh, my parents would always have Beatle cassettes going. And it wasn't like the specific, it was a blank cassette. It was these old uh, Capitol records in, in the 70s started making blank cassettes. Uh, uh, I don't know how if they had 60 minutes, 90 minutes, but the ones that my parents had were 120 minutes, the two hour, you know. And they came in these really cool psychedelic looking boxes like they had like psychedelic art on on these boxes that the cassettes came in to do your own mixtapes right yeah to do your own mixtapes and and uh my parents uh what they did was they taped all these records so you could fit like two albums maybe some singles on each side and uh we listened to those constantly and i don't know it's certain songs stick with you uh through the years and you know, for some reason, a lot of these tunes on this album, when I hear them, it, it takes me back to being a kid, you know, in the car, going up to our, our summer cottage or just going on little road trips. And then at home, uh, my parents had this album on 8-track and other Beatle records on, on 8-track. And uh, yeah, we grew up in a house that was, even though it was by this point, the end of the 80s, early 90s. It was still very, very much eight tracks, cassettes, records. Like my dad only had eight or nine CDs. And uh, 
so, and he had this cool eight-track carousel that fits 16 eight-track cartridges that he got from a radio station that, that was selling stuff off. So I remember hearing this album a lot at home. Um, and yeah, there's just certain songs that really bring me back. What You're Doing, uh, uh, Yes It Is, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. Like These songs just bring me back to being four or five years old staring at this A-track, the, the the weird photo of them on the front, which I never, I only found out recently that they're like cutting a cake or something yes, on the cover. Yes, yes, I've got but that in my notes, yeah. I never knew what they were doing. It's like, do they all have their hands on like a golf club or what are they, you know, but still there's something about them. I guess the they're uniformed, you know, they all have the beetle haircuts, they're wearing... You know, well, I guess Ringo's wearing like a turtleneck, but the rest of them are wearing dress shirts and ties. There's just something so fascinating about the look of them. I, I get why they, everyone became obsessed with them because I'm this little kid. I have no idea who they are, and I'm so interested to find out what the what these guys are all about, what this band is all about. It was the same for me. It was a different time when I got into them. It was the uh, the early 70s, but same thing. Is it just as my my little kid mind was just captivated by their music and by their look and by everything. Now, uh, dear listener, you can't see because uh, hey, it's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but sitting on the table in front of me, you have an original eight track of Beatles 6 and also is this an original vinyl copy that you have as well? Um, this is actually one of the 70s, the late 70s, the purple capital label uh, issues. And I got that from a, a record store that's still there on Kingston Road. Uh, it's called Beach Sound, but for many years it was called Century Records. And I, the first time I went there was my ninth birthday. My brother Sean took me up there. And I got the white album for four ninety nine, you know, <laughs> and uh, bargain, and, bargain. Yeah, and everything changed from, you know, at that point I started getting an allowance to buy records because a lot of the records were two dollars, five dollars, and I just started going there every weekend. And and the first records I was buying was definitely Beatle records because all I had was a few that I got from a garage sale when well, you could still go to garage sales and get, you know, yesterday and today get Beatles records and what, stuff. What about the 8-track? What's what's that story of that 8-track? That's my parents. So they bought that, you know, probably in the early 70s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they had a bunch of other uh, 8-tracks. Again, you know, my dad still plays this stuff yeah. at home, you know? <laughs> and uh, I remember hearing the Blue album on, on 8-track and I could still hear the the very end of Penny Lane, Penny Lane, and then you hear faintly from the other channel the piano creeping up from A Day in the Life, because you could hear the, they would cross, right, the channels on A-tracks. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were, um, I was telling you before we started recording, but my, my dad had an eight-track player in his, uh, it was a, I want to say it was a blue Impala in the early 70s, and that was cutting edge technology oh yeah <laughs> and they're so shit like they sound terrible <laughs> well i mean yeah the a-tracks constantly broke right they would break the 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 tape would get eaten up but i mean some of this stuff is uh survived you know uh that that's cool that's a, that yeah is a, i i dig it and and i i love that i have it because i would stare at it so much when i was a kid like basically 
my introduction was staring at that and watching uh, the Imagine documentary, the John Lennon, the late 80s one. I watched that constantly, you know, and, and so that helped with the, the fascination and uh, yeah. It's a great album. I think it actually, even though it's cut up, you know, North American release, it's all cut up. I think it it flows quite nicely and it's a very enjoyable record. And of course, I, I uh, by the time I was a, a little older, I started getting the CDs, the British releases, and I switched over. It's like, well, these are the, this is what they yes. were intending to put out. But the North American releases and Canadian releases like Twist and Shout, I mean, those were my parents' records, and those were the records that I could find easily. I could go to Century Records and get Twist and Show for two bucks. I think I got this one, uh, the reissue, because the original was more money. So it's like, well, I can get this for three ninety nine. You know, uh, it, it it is. You know, and I always say this to people: is uh, I mean, the British ones are the British ones, the original catalog, and they're sort of sacrosanct for that reason. But for even though they're Frankenstein and uh, Capital US on the US releases put extra yeah. reverb and echo and really mucked with the recordings. Which sometimes works for me. I like that there's more on like Yes It Is. It's so big. Oh, some of them, yeah. And, and it, it's, but for Canadians and and North Americans in general, even though it's all of that, these still hold a great deal of sentimental value because that's how we were all introduced to the Beatles in, yeah. a, in a different world when you couldn't go online and, and download an import. You couldn't download anything or you couldn't go to the record store and buy an import copy. So so we got lots to talk about, including uh, your great new album, Nothing Pressing. Uh, and uh, you're going to be out there playing again. You've been a busy man. But first of all, before we dive into it, uh, I'll give you a little bit of context. So it's 1965 and North America still peak Beatlemania. So remember, 1963 was the year the Beatles broke in the UK. That was Beatlemania there. They'd released their first single, Love Me Do, in October of 62. Their first number one single, Please Please Me, came out in January of 63. And their first number one album, also called Please Please Me, came out in March of 63. And the follow-up with the Beatles dropped in November of 63. So that's what's going on in the UK. The Beatles were getting some traction in Canada. Capital Canada released five singles in 1963. Uh, A-sides were Love Me Do, Please Please Me, From Me to You, She Loves You, and Roll Over Beethoven. Uh, With the Beatles, Beatlemania was also released in Canada in November of 1963. Uh, The Beatles were uh, on a couple of obscure minor labels in the USA in 63, VJ and Swan, but they had no chart success. Now, of course, Capital USA infamously declined to release any Beatles music until right at the end of 1963, when I Want to Hold Your Hand was Rush released as a single after a DJ in Washington started playing an imported copy of the song, and it went right to number one. The Beatles then appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964, and it was off to the races as far as North American Beatlemania goes. Now, as I've discussed before, up until Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967, Beatles albums in North America bore little resemblance to their UK counterparts. Tracks were pulled off the UK albums, slapped together with singles and B-sides, treated with extra reverb in some cases and fake stereo sound. And I always say they were sort of Frankenstein into other albums. They took all these parts and made something. Uh, This did 
pissed the Beatles off to an extent, but there wasn't much they could do about it until 1967 when they signed a new recording deal, part of which stipulated that Capital USA would now be obligated to mirror the UK releases of albums, and thus it changed with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But between 63 and 67, there were two very different worlds in terms of Beatle albums. You had the U.S. catalog and what is now the original Beatles catalog in the U.K. And just for fun, throw Canada in because it was different still. Uh, Prior to June of 64, at which time Capital USA decreed that the releases in Canada would be exactly the same as the releases in the USA, there were three album releases that were uniquely Canadian. With the Beatles, Twist and Shout, which drew largely from Please Please Me, and Long Tall Sally. So just to recap, if you're scoring at home, in 64, Capital USA releases Meet the Beatles in January, the Beatles' second album in April, A Hard Day's Night in June, that's a United Artists release, in July, Something New, in November, The Beatles' Story, and in December, Beatles' 65. So we slide into 65. In March 65, Capitol releases The Early Beatles, a collection of songs from way back in 1963 (laughs) that were released on the VJ label. Then on June 14th, 1965, Capitol releases the album we're going to talk about today, Beatles 6. The title was actually inaccurate since it was the seventh Beatles album released in the USA by Capitol Records and their ninth overall, including VJ's Introducing the Beatles and United Artists it's a Hard Day's Night soundtrack, but I'm, I'm nitpicking a little bit. seems likely that the Capitol was not including the documentary album The Beatles Story in its count either. The album contained six tracks from the UK release Beatles for Sale, which came out in December of 64. So it's Kansas City, Hey, 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 Eight Days a Week, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, Words of Love, What You're Doing, and Every Little Thing. Those are all from Beatles for Sale. Two tracks from the UK Help album, You Like Me Too Much and Tell Me What You See, both available in North America before they'd been released in the UK. Uh, The UK Help album didn't come out until August. And then we have Yes It Is, which was a B-side to Ticket to Ride, and two tracks recorded specifically for American release, both covers, Bad Boy and Dizzy Miss Lizzy, uh, the latter of which they stuck on as the last track of the UK Help album. So the album comes out in mono and stereo. It topped the U.S. Billboard charts for six consecutive weeks. It was a million seller in the U.S. by the end of the decade. In Canada, the album debuts at number four on the Chum Album Index and then hits number one the following week, and it stays there for five weeks in a row. As per chartmasters.org, as of 2015... Global physical sales of the album. Now remember, this is primarily a North American album. Global physical sales, 1.8 million. And uh, also, just for... uh for kicks, why not? The album was released in New Zealand in December of 1966 as a Christmas release. So there you go. You are up to speed on Beatles 6. So let's take it out of the jacket. Let's put it on the turntable. And it is side one. Cut one, it's a cover, Kansas City, hey, 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 hey.
you know, uh, Paul's doing his uh, his little Richard. You know, I love that rock and roll voice that he does when he goes into the the you know little Richard inspired vocals. And of course, yeah, it, it, this is a medley of of Kansas City, Hey Hey Hey. Um, but I was saying to you earlier that. Um, a lot of the Beatles covers, a lot of the songs that they covered was the first versions that I heard. So, you know, years later, I would hear the originals and, and uh, this one in particular, there's just so much energy that they bring to it. I mean, they're a good rock and roll band. Like, it's very tight, but loose in the right places as well. You know, it just, I think it's a great opening track for, for, uh, for an album. And I do love Beatles for Sale. I think that's like a country, that's like their country album in a way with some rock and roll rockabilly here and there. But um, to start off a record, it just like, it's, it's almost like in the spirit of Little Richard, the first Little Richard records, you know, it starts off with Tutti Fruity and it just, pounds through the the speakers it just smacks you in the face and and uh i feel like yeah this has that yep. you know yep it, it it grabs your attention it was weirdly placed i always thought like it is a you know we talk about sequencing it starts this album off with all that energy it originally it was the last cut on side one of beatles for sale right. um medley of two songs libra stoller is kansas city and then little richard's hey 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 which was a b-side to uh, good golly miss molly um beatles were big little richard fans uh, they they saw him perform the medley in concert and they adopted it for their own set in 1962, and they actually played it with them a couple of times in England in October of that year, and then that's where they became buddies. Uh, uh, they hooked up again in Hamburg at the Star Club and and, uh, and became became fast friends. But yeah, what a voice, what a yeah, voice. Yeah, and I love the harmonies at the, you know, near the end. I, I know John's in there. I don't know if it's John and George or if Paul, you know, overdubbed. Some harmony oh, vocals. Bye, on bye, it. Bye, yeah, bye, I love bye. that stuff. They're just so tight together. I mean, you know, they're a great band. Do you ever play this one? If no. Oh, it's, a, it's got Delphi's tune written all over it. You know, the only song that that I've uh, I've played a lot from this album, I think the yeah the only one is uh, yes it is. Oh. You know, which is one of my favorite. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, That's one of my my favorites. Even though I know Lennon hated it, but <laughs> uh, but I mean, he hated like probably seventy five percent of his output. So uh, McCartney says I could do Little Richard's voice, which is a wild horse screaming thing. It's like an out of body experience. You have to leave your current sensibilities and go about a foot above your head to sing it. You have to actually go outside of yourself. It's a funny little trick and. And when you find it, it's very interesting. McCartney said that in many years from now. Do you get what he's talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, you're you're. Uh, it's a different character in a way, you know. Um, I totally get what he's saying, and I also get what you're saying. But having it's like a weird opening for an album. It's a kind of. It, it, it's if I wasn't so used to it, I probably would think it's a bit jarring when you put the needle down and it just blasts out. It doesn't seem like an opening track, but I think I'm so 
I'm so used to hearing it that it's it's uh, it's still it it seems very friendly to me. Well, me too. I I yeah. I, I think it's a it, yeah. It just comes right at you. Um, the Beatles played the medley in their own set going back to Cavern days. So I was talking about that earlier. They but they pretty much dropped it uh, from their live set by 1963. But then there's a neat little story where uh, what city would you guess that they played in the United States where they might have dusted this one off? Was it Kansas City? Maybe Kansas City would be a good suggestion. Uh, they played <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri on September 17th, 64, and they dusted it off and they played it. And apparently, according to reports I read, it just went over. Yeah. Like, I feel like Paul came up with that. <laughs> hey, lads, what is, you know. <laughs> uh, and the Beatles did, uh, they did a second take of the medley during the session. So they took a couple of runs at this. Uh, that remained unissued until 1995, and you can hear that version on Anthology mm. 1. You can hear their first one. Is this the uh, the first take that they used? This you know? is from, I'm just looking through my notes to see when this, it was from a session on October the 18th, 1964, and I do not have that yeah. in my notes, whether it was a first take or now, not. I know Long Tall Sally was a first take. Um, you know, some of those that, that require uh, uh, that much energy and when you're, you're really screaming the vocals, you know, you, you, you only get a few tries with that. But, but Paul always, I mean, to my ears, it seems like he always had... I mean, I, Lennon's my probably my favorite vocalist of all time, but Paul had a a, a, a lot more control, and you know Lennon could scream out songs, but then he'd be done for the day, or the or even two days, where Paul could keep going. You know, he he could he could do that without you know, damaging too much. It was just a different way of singing. Well, there's a great story, and I, I'll probably get the songs mixed up, but it was at the same session where he did, like, one of his throat shredding songs, so like a, a Long Tall Sally type yeah. song, one of those, and then the next song they worked on was Yesterday. Yeah. Well, there's a perfect uh, example, you know. That's uh, just astounding, yeah. right? You know, that yeah. That the that you and it, it's even. I find it weird that George Martin, as the producer, would have even allowed that, where he would have said, yeah. "Well, no, no, we'll we'll do the ballad first, lads." Like, yeah, you know? <laughs> it's it's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, you know, but that's uh, why he's Paul McCartney, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to cut two on side one, and uh, I love this one with the fade up eight days a week. Oh, I need your love, babe. Guess you know it's true. Hope you need my love, babe. Just like I need you. Hold me, love me. Hold me, love me. I love this one. I love the them singing together. I think a lot of it's unison, where they're, you know, they're. Uh, I think at this point, Lennon or Paul could have just double tracked their vocals or or found like a different harmony to do. But they're so great at singing together, and and uh, Paul in particular could really match John, you know, really well. And and 
So it gives it this real uh, uh, natural sound, and it's also more joyous sounding. You know, the, the thickness of the vocals. Um, it sounds very happy. Um, you know, this is just a great pop song. I've never really uh, overanalyzed this tune. It's just a great. It's a great song. I love the 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 fade in, which apparently was you know nobody had really done that before. This this fade in, um, and I have heard different earlier takes where they were working it out and trying different intros, and and uh, they definitely made the right choice, which is. Um, which is also a great thing about the Beatles, like when uh, watching the recent Get Back documentary and you, you see them trying to work out, Paul has this vocal idea for Don't Let Me Down and George thinks it's awful. And I'm with George, it sounds terrible. But, but they, they knew, they were, they were great at editing themselves, you know? They, they would try different things and then drop it if it wasn't working. Well, as you sort of brought it up, I was going to ask you about it later, but we can talk about it now. Is, uh, so you watched Get Back. As, as, yeah. Uh, from your musician's eye view, your songwriter's eye view, what was your take on the whole thing? Did anything surprise you or just give me your, your sort of summation of it? Well, what I found surprising was watching it and and relating to a lot of it. You know, uh, being in the studio or just rehearsals and, and trying to get an arrangement, uh, you know, it can be frustrating when it's not coming together and you don't know what it is, you know? And... Uh, yeah, and then there's like the goofy moments, you know, where you're just hanging out and and uh, you're just cracking jokes and and uh, poking fun. Um, yeah, I thought that was surprising of of uh, just seeing how the Beatles were just normal guys trying to play some music and you know have fun, but also get the job done. And uh, and I really related to a lot of that. Um, d- different though, I would think for you, Jerry, because and you know I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you're more of a lone wolf. Like you, you know, in terms of your, you know, you're a solo songwriter. You don't have, to the best of mm-hmm. mine, you don't have like a regular sort of four piece of guys who you play with all the time and sit around and write with, or, or like it's, well, it's, it do. must be different. Well, not write with, but. You know, uh, the drummer, my drummer, uh, Kyle, we've been playing together since we were teenagers. Uh, And Dan Mock on bass, he's been there since 2007. Um, And we had another friend of ours, James, and he was in the band for like 14 years. So, you know, I always treat it in, in the way that Tom Petty was with the Heartbreakers or Springsteen with E Street Band. Like I, I considered us and still do consider us a, a family really. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm steering the ship and, and, you know, making the decisions, but I've always been, uh, I always invite, you know, uh, arrangement ideas and stuff like that. I mean, there's a certain, I'll bring a song to the band and a certain way that I'm playing it. I might have a bunch of arrangement ideas already, but there's a certain way that I might play it 
that is already dictating where it's going to go, like tempo-wise or rhythm-wise. Do you tell them what to play? The way, for example, McCartney would say, Ringo, do the drum part like this. No, I mean, there's certain... Yeah, I might have certain ideas, but I, I definitely uh, am more like Lennon, where you're just kind of feeling it out and, oh yeah, that's that's great, or maybe a variation of this. Like, I'm not dictating what everyone's playing. I mean, yeah, certainly by that point in, in uh, the Beatles' career, Paul already knew exactly what he wanted everyone to play. I'm, I'm not so much like that, because I'm not as... Uh, technical you know i can't always explain what i want you know because it's a feeling and, mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. so I, I i generally uh as lennon goes on and, and get back he he's talking about uh well why don't we just improvise why don't we just play it out i'm more on that way you know i i, I rather us just keep playing the song till till it, it it finds its place i'm not i don't have it all worked out i mean some songs there's exceptions of course but mm -hmm. uh but generally i don't i don't work that way a couple of cool things with this song uh two different stories uh there's one that mccartney has told uh, he told it in uh, anthology one uh i remember writing that song with john at his place in weybridge from something said by the chauffeur who drove me out there uh, the uh, the chauffeur had said, uh, you know, Paul said, how you been? And the chauffeur said, oh, working hard, mate, uh, working eight days a week. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard anyone say that expression. So when I arrived at John's house, I said, hey, fellow just said eight days a week. And John said, right. Uh, ooh, I need your love, babe. And away they went and they wrote the song. Another story also told by McCartney <laughs> is that it was a phrase that Ringo had used. Uh, so it's uh, guys can sometimes be... Uh, and, and fair enough, it was a long time ago, but uh, McCartney's a, it, one of the worst interpreters of his own work. <laughs> I, can't, I can't trust him when he, you know, it's like every, every another year goes by and, and, uh, and all of a sudden he, you know, co-wrote some other John Lennon song that he never mentioned before. Yeah, or, or Blackbird suddenly became, uh, you know, an anthem for racial equality yeah. for the, you know, that, that story. Yeah, and who's going to argue with them, you know? It's yeah. like I, I, yeah. I was hearing Peter Jackson talk about uh, that, that, that clip where uh, Paul and George are, are having a row. It's in the original Let It Be film. And Ringo, just because of, you know, time passing, he thought that George walked out right after that. And that's not the case at all. But, you know, Peter Jackson wasn't going to argue with him about it. But, but you know, that's not what happened. But, you know, there's enough books, there's documentaries, there's this and that. And, and yeah, in time passing in their age, uh, I, I think they're relying on Beatle experts to, to tell them, you know, what their life story is, you know? Because, oh, I mean, hey. I can't remember stuff that happened two years ago, like, let alone no. 50 years ago. Tons of studies if you want to go out there and uh, and sift through the internet. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, your memory is one of the worst things to go by. Yeah. Like, eyewitness testimony, incredibly unreliable. Uh, from Mark Lewison's book, The Complete Beatles Recordings, uh, take one was played straight, no frills on acoustic guitar. On take two, John and Paul introduced a succession of beautifully harmonized oohs uh, climbing up the scale. Uh, and I've heard that before. You can hear it on Anthology 1. Okay. 
Is it just me and you? One, two, three, four. eventually drop that and uh, take six was the one that sort of uh, more took shape and was close to the release version uh, but did not have the faded intro or outro so they they added that in there mm-hmm. a little bit later on cool thing too on the session tapes you can hear lennon you know between takes working out the guitar riff to i feel fine oh that's cool yeah yeah, uh, and, and they worked on it later in the same October 18th session, the day they did this. So you could hear them, I guess, when they were reorganizing or he, he was working out this guitar part that you Yeah, you I like hear. hearing stuff like that. Uh, during the Imagine sessions, they're, they're getting ready to record Oh My Love, I think. And, uh, and, and, you know, I guess they're just getting levels or, or setting stuff up and Lennon's just at the piano and, and he's playing mind games, you know, but it was make love, not war at that point. It didn't have the mind games lyrics, but that's what he's playing, which would be a couple of years later. He, he tend to hold on to, you know, if he really liked a, a melody, he would come back to it. And of course he did that with uh, jealous guy and, where it was child of nature before that. Well, and it and was so cool in Get Back uh, where you'd hear little snippets of, like you heard little snippets of Backseat of My Car. which Yeah, you know, that what? was really cool. Yeah, uh, and uh, Another Day, I think McCartney was fiddling around with. Yeah. Like it, it was it was. Like really... I didn't know those songs were kicking around at that time. I had no idea. Apparently were, apparently. You know, some of them I knew, yeah, Give Me Some Truth, I heard on bootlegs. and Well, uh, and, well and it looks in Get Back as though McCartney helped yeah. Lennon work on it. Yeah, definitely he kept the the rope line or dope line. I can't remember what it is, but uh but yeah, I never knew that. No, no. I mean the thing is is that Paul is so prolific. And it's interesting with Lennon because Lennon started off when you look at the early Beatles records. I mean, Lennon was writing most of the stuff. Yes. He was writing most of the songs. And then there's this this switch there, you know, starting with Revolver, where it's kind of more even ground between him and Paul. And then Paul, you know, Lennon's becoming more disinterested and Paul's swooping in a little... And he's finding himself as as a writer and performer, you know, I mean, he was there before too. Obviously, John and Paul were writing these songs, and he wrote amazing tunes already. But he was really just—I mean, he's on fire during "Get Back." I mean, how many songs did he did he write during that time? And Lennon comes with with two tracks. I mean, one of those tracks is my favorite <laughs> out of the whole batch. But but like Paul's just on fire with his writing. You know, you, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have you back sometime, and we'll do we'll just do we'll do a whole. A whole episode on just talking about get back documentary. Oh yeah, a, <laughs> that, yeah. I've watched it three uh, times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> so uh, back to uh, Beatles six, and we go to the third cut on side one, and the first George Harrison track on the album that we hear. You like me too much. Though you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight Telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right You'll never leave me and you know it's true 
This is an underrated song. I, I, I think it's a great tune. I, I love uh, the keyboard that they're using on the pianet, which was like, uh, uh, I think, considered like a shitty version of a Wurlitzer, but Wurlitzer electric piano. But it has such a certain sound. The zombies used it a lot. Um, it sounds so cool. It, it creates a, a certain mood to this tune. I also love the rhythm the, uh, of George's vocals when he gets into the... Uh, 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 oh, what's the lines when he gets into that? Uh, bring you back where you belong Cause I couldn't really stand it, I admit that I love... When vocals do that kind of rhythm, there's another song I love, uh, a soul song, uh, William Bell, I Forgot to Be Your Lover. And it kind of has this, this vocal rhythm where the vocal is really driving that, that part for me. And, and uh, I always thought it was an underrated song. I, you know, It gets kind of hidden as far as Beatle tracks go. It, it originally appeared on the UK version of the Help album as the fourth track on side one. And it uh, came from the same session that also produced Yes It Is, which we're going to come to, uh, which was a B-side for Ticket to Ride. And it, it, it features, there's the pianet you talked about, but also that distinctive tone pedal guitar. That I love wah. that. And that's on both songs, Yes It Is. Yeah, and, and I and Need You. Like you. Too much. Yeah. It's on I Need You as well. Um, here's one you might get, uh, being a musician. Uh, this is from a, one review. An interesting feature is the use of an imperfect cadence. Uh imperfectly resolving on a tonic A chord. So in the in the climax of the bridge, I just can't go on anymore, uh, which uh, they, the, it's, uh, uses a B, looks like a, a B major seventh and a, an E7 chord. Um, oh yeah, that's an I need you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what the my note he uh, he uh, he developed uh, that technique in his song. If I needed someone on Rubber Soul. Oh, yeah, cool. If I needed someone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pardon my singing. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think it's a, a cool little song. I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, compared to eight days a week, I mean, both of them have, uh, you know, it's not the most sophisticated lyrics, you know. Um, I never really got that with the with the early George Harrison songs that they were a lot weaker or, or whatever. I mean, I even like "Don't Bother Me." I think it sits well on that album, you know. Like, I I never really heard how his, you know, he only started matching Lennon and McCartney near the end there. Like I, there's so many great Harrison tunes that, that, uh, I mean, they just fit, especially this record, they just fit nicely along with the, uh, with Lennon and McCartney's tunes. Uh, that instrument you talked about is called a Honer pianet, a Honer pianet. Uh, it was played by John Lennon in this track and you can hear the instruments, uh, Tremolo, tremolo. Yeah, uh, you can hear it being switched off after the intro. Yeah, yeah, it has the shakiness in the very beginning, and then he, he turns it off. And a buddy of mine, well, you had him on the show, Tim Ovacani. Yeah, he has a pianet, and I played it on a, a song that actually didn't end up making uh, my new album. 
but just the thrill of playing it, like the sound of that pianette is so deep inside me because of these early Beatle records and also the zombies. My dad had this very best of the zombies record that I, I grew up on. So that sound is just, I don't know, it's something so uh, mysterious about it. It, it creates a, a certain mood that uh, the Wurlitzer electric piano doesn't, it doesn't quite, um, doesn't quite take me there. I don't know. There's like a certain darkness about it. It's, it makes it very moody. Like you like me too much it, it, to my ears. It makes it kind of like this moody song. It doesn't have the cheesiness of, uh, is it called a Farfisa? Yeah, For, yeah, Farfisa. That, that yeah. sounds cheesy to me. This doesn't. Which, like, S Steve Naive used a lot in the attractions. Elvis Costello in the attractions, and uh, we used that a lot on my very first album, which which Tim produced. And uh, yeah, we used a Farfisa at that time, which which I was really excited about because I was my initial idea of what I wanted to sound like when I got the band together is I wanted. I wanted to be like Dylan, but I wanted to be more like rock and roll, you know, kind of have a certain pop sensibility. And I, I just felt, you know, meshing Dylan with Elvis Costello and a little bit of Joe Strummer was the way to go. But, you know, after a couple albums, I started finding my, my own way. So a bit of a scrambled album so far, sort of. I mean, we've had a couple of songs from the Beatles for sale, one from Help. Uh, and the next one was recorded specifically for Capital USA because they needed a couple of tracks to pad out the album. Now, I know that you have had some success in foreign markets, as the Beatles were trying to with Capital USA. Yeah. Uh, nice feature on you uh, in the March issue of the German edition of Rolling Stone. Uh, how did that? How did that come about? How do you think you you gain traction in Germany the way you have, for example? Well, uh, you know, I I don't really know. I mean, I, I of course have always had uh, a real confidence in my abilities, you know, um, uh, as a songwriter and performer with what I do, you know, and. Uh, and basically what ended up happening was I, I bugged the label I'm on here, Leighton Recordings, which is the Cowboy Junkies label. I, I, was, uh, I was bugging Mike about getting it, the album that we had released uh, in 2017, Nonsense and Heartache. I was bugging him to get that distributed overseas because I knew that the label had distribution deals um, throughout the UK and Europe and the States. And I'd been trying, there's a few false starts. I've been trying to book a European tour in the past. And uh, at the end, maybe the fall of 2017, uh, my bass player, Dan, and I, we played a show in Montreal and, and uh, it was okay, but it was, you know, it was like a room full of, of people like kind of talking, you know, which is like a, a, a common thing, you know, especially here. And, and uh, we were driving home from Montreal the next day, you know, the big tr long drive back to Toronto. And I just said, you know, that's it. I'm. Uh, we're going to Europe. I'm gonna. I'm really gonna make this happen. You know. I just felt like 
there was there was other markets that would be really into what we're doing, um, and and may at least at first be more appreciative than than how it's been. You know, I mean, here I have my fan base too. I'm not like trying to knock that, yeah, but, no, I, I, but there's a certain engagement that I felt was was lacking, and I, I felt the records and the shows we were putting on deserved more, and and uh, and I just noticed that a lot of roots artists overseas, and and also roots artists in those markets like the UK. There's just a, a a more appreciation, or it seemed like there was a, a wider audience that was really into it. So my theory, yeah, uh, I lived over there for for nine years. Lived in London, and uh, if if you love the arts, you know music. But if you if you love theater, which I do, uh, art, so painting, yeah. sculpture, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I think that in general, the arts and music in this case play a larger role in people's lives. There are big, big sections in the newspapers. Yeah, there, music magazines are still healthy there. Yes, exactly. CDs still sell throughout Europe and the UK, you know, I, as long, you know, don't as know, long with records. I don't know why that is, why it, but I think the average person who I would run across there, it's something, you know, you would talk about, have you seen the new play at the Royal Court? Yeah. And you'd say, oh yeah, be, you know, it's really, and you, you know, there's a decent chance they would have seen it or they would have read about it or they would have been aware of it. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't have that conversation, I don't think, with your average Torontonian my age. You go, hey, did you, did you see the, you know, do you see the new show at, and I'm thinking of smaller theater, not, you know, have you seen the, the latest big extravaganza at Mervish's yeah. place? But it's, I don't know. And I don't, do you have a theory as to why? I I I don't know why exactly, but it is yeah. It does seem to be very much uh, a part of uh, uh, the culture, and and uh, and I know for me uh, when you know I started getting the tour together, and and so Mike agreed to set up a a, a deal over there to get Nonsense and Heartache re-released in 2018. The 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 critical acclaim that I had been receiving, you know, my whole career and also some other peers like Ron Sexsmith and more recently Tommy Stinson from The Replacements and, you know, different people and even the Mike, you know, Cowboy Junkies Association. That kind of stuff didn't really get more people out to my shows here. It didn't really get more people buying my records. But over there, it was a lot different where it's like, oh, this is one of Ron's favorite songwriters right now that actually ended up selling records there and that actually ended up getting more people out to the shows to like find out you know reading a great review like the rolling stone that uh, that writer mike like he's a big beatles fan big sexsmith fan big dylan fan so when he heard nonsense and heartache he totally latched onto it <laughs> Yeah. 
the stuff started building there, and I, I was getting more UK press, and and again, like uh, a great review and uncut is going to get nice review, yeah. You know, and and that's that stuff still uh, works there, which is great because I, you know, my whole life I've always read uncut and Mojo, and you know that stuff is really cool to me, and and. Uh, yeah, so it's it's still been building, you know. I'm not like any kind of star anywhere, anywhere, but you know, it's it's uh, it's been a nice build the last it'll few come, years. You it'll know? come. Keep working at it, and I'll yeah. say, I knew him. He used to come to my place and do interviews. Yeah, well, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love. Uh, I love writing. I love making records. I love playing, and so that's why I'm very excited to to get back at it you know and Canada too like I you know I have a a good fan base here that I I wanted to to keep growing but uh, but yeah it's it's a different different kinds of audiences I would I would say yeah let's go to cut four on side one and I've I'm just predicting I'm predicting you love this one you're because you love John Lennon you love John Lennon vocals great vocal bad boy Yeah, he's one of the best rock and roll vocalists. I mean, I love the original too, the the Larry Williams, which I heard much later. But yeah, there's just a certain energy that that the the Beatles bring to these songs. And uh, yeah, the vocal's so good. And like George is playing along the his guitar part is great. Oh yeah, the. It's a, it's a cool song. It was a, it was a completely made for America night at EMI Studios. It was May tenth, nineteen sixty five, and the Beatles were you know run off their feet as as was sort of the thing then. They were they were shooting a movie, uh, Help. They were trying to record an album, uh, and Capital USA needed some tracks, so they spent the day at Cliveden House shooting scenes for Help. Uh, if you know the movie, those were the scenes where. Uh, they're at what looks like uh, it's supposed to be Buckingham Palace and the, the hose comes oh, in right. and they, they put it down. Uh, they put the hose out the window and the guards pass yeah. out and so on. And but I think they're stoned out of their minds during those scenes too. Through much of the movie, yeah, yeah. I, I understand. Uh, so they came, they're out shooting that day at Cliveden House. Then they come into the studio that night and they ran off two Larry Williams classics from their old stage act. So they, they knew them, ran through them, and then bang. And it was Dizzy Miss Lizzie and this cut, Bad Boy. Uh, they played them live in the studio, minimal overdubs, if any, and they were recorded and mixed and off to Capital USA by the next morning. So <laughs> Yeah. That, but that, that's the, that shows how tight they were, you know? I mean, they played that song a million times. Um, and then they were just able to, to, you know, pick it back up and, and, you know, 
do it in a few takes or whatever. And, and uh, yeah, and, and George's guitar parts, you know, I can't help but play air guitar or, or uh, a big thing for me that um, people notice if we're sitting around listening to records is I air drum. I air drum more than anything. And, and, uh, and yeah, Ringo is uh, just a great drummer, a great rock and roll drummer. And, and uh, yeah, this is a really fun, it's a fun tune. It's a fun recording. The vocal's great. The band sounds great. It's, yeah. I loved it when I was a kid. I, uh, trivial fact, an interesting one. Uh, this song was available in the U.S. and Canada for about a year and a half before the rest of the world, including the U.K., uh, ever heard it. Uh, it is um, this. Oh, I'm just. Uh, this is the only case where the song wasn't actually used for a U.K. album. A UK album, probably. Yeah, it was like the collection of oldies or something like that. It yep. showed up on, yeah. yeah. Now, so uh, Larry Williams, the writer of both those songs, and then you know they loved Larry Williams. Definitely influenced the Beatles in their early days. You put up a playlist of songs that were on your playlist while you were making Nothing Pressing, your new album. Yeah, and it was a diverse list. So I'm, I've just went through. It. We had Elvis Costello on there, uh, Sonny and Cher, The Zombies, The Four Top. Blue Rodeo, Ron Sexsmith. There were no Beatles on that playlist. Well, what is going on, Mr. Well, Legere? Well, you know, the thing is, is that that particular playlist was uh, was stuff that I new newer stuff I was listening to, or, or stuff that was new to me, or or uh, uh, as in the you know with the case uh, the Blue Rodeo song rose-colored glasses i i just heard that record a lot again in in the car on cassette outskirts and so i was rediscovering some stuff like matthew sweet blue rodeo these songs i hadn't really listened to for a long time i didn't put any beatles on there because i'm always listening to the beatles <laughs> constantly like there there's no rediscovery there is no like oh i've never heard this one like I'm constantly listening to them, so that's why they didn't they didn't I, make I was, it onto I the was playlist. Scrolling through my Twitter feed, oh look at you know well, yeah. look, Jerry's playlist. That'd be yeah. interesting. I'll click blasphemy. It, no Beatles. Yeah, I'm yeah. having the guy on to talk about the Beatles <laughs> anyway. Now, for what yeah. it's worth, um, for on your album, uh, I got a, a definite. Neil Young vibe, uh, certainly off of uh, Recluse Revisions. Yeah, that song. a phantom limb a pain within the victim remember what you lost shake of the hand you got I thought this bar was gone looks the same after so long you're the one who's different I'm making recluse revisions uh, I thought the album in general, now this is just, you know, I've just listened to it a couple of times. Yeah. I thought it had a real harvest feel to it. The great Neil oh, yeah, Young. Oh, cool. yeah, um, You know, so sort of folk country, but with a harder edge to it. And am I, am I hitting yeah. some marks there? Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, I think a lot of my stuff is like that. You know, I, I, uh, 
Yeah, I uh, with Neil Young. Um, that's one thing that I, I've always loved about him is that he on the same album he could have these kind of like country songs, and then he could, you know, you would have uh, "Oh Lonesome Me" his cover of "Oh Lonesome Me" and and stuff like "Tell Me Why" and then "Southern Man," you know, on yep. on the same record, and. I've done that on a lot of my albums where I've, I've jumped in, in, uh, in those two pools, you know, and because I love more acoustic music and I also love rock and roll, you know, and, and, uh, uh, what that nonsense and heartache album, we, we split that up where one record yes, I remember was that. very rock and roll. And the other one was, was more acoustic songwriter stuff. So, I, uh, yeah, Neil's been a big influence in that way, and and uh, yeah, and so I, I can definitely understand why you would hear that on on this new album and Recluse Revisions. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Well, I'm playing harmonica, this kind of ghostly yeah. harmonica yes. solo, and and uh, and it's more melodic than than say uh, Dylan's harmonica playing, which is pretty, you know. Uh, uh, he can go pretty nuts on it, um, which is great too. And he can also be quite beautiful on it. But but Neil Young is consistently melodic with his harmonica playing. So I was sticking to that and like following the 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 song a little bit more. And and yeah, and with the electric playing, I could hear that too. I'm not letting the electric ring out as much. You know, it's uh, uh, Neil has a certain approach to that as well so again that track is called recluse revisions and it's on jerry's new album nothing pressing out now on vinyl cd and streaming on all streaming services Uh, you can also find some of his older stuff which i would encourage you to check out on bandcamp including a great little album it's a really quirky album almost sounds like a demo album i think it was made in a hurry but uh, he did it with tim bovacanti and it's called the good old days or back in drag and it's a it's a good listen doesn't cost you that much on Bandcamp. check it out before we move on to the next track i would like to ask you to please consider making a donation to support keeping this podcast commercial free any donation much appreciated and i can assure you that your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show web hosting advertising some equipment costs it's a labor of love for me something i do for fun uh, but if you enjoy the show please do consider a donation to support the show maybe just a couple of dollars per episode a dollar per episode it's not that much uh whole of series 2 20 bucks There you go. Just click on the donate button on the website if you would like to help out. Thank you very much in advance for that. And also, if you're enjoying this episode, you might also enjoy the other episode that I did with Jerry in Series 1, where we go through the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album. He has some pretty cool takes on that. Uh, That was Episode 10 of Series 1, and it's available along with every episode that we've done in the series in the the archive wherever you get your podcasts or at the podcast website romicast.com let's get back to a side one of the 1965 album beatles six and it's the second last track on side one an introspective john lennon song i don't want to spoil the party i don't want to spoil the party so i'll go i would hate my disappointment to show 
there's nothing for me here So I will disappear If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know I've had a drink or two and I don't care There's no fun in what I do when she's not there Some would say a preview of You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which was on Help. Do you get that? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'd never thought about it before, you know, uh, what, it, what it kind of sounded like. I just heard it as uh, the Beatles' country song, you know? It's like one of their country tunes, um, I guess, which would come from Carl Perkins' influence. Because uh, I don't know how much country music they were actually listening to. I'm um, even in Get Back when Lennon plays Hank Williams' You Win Again on piano. It's obviously the, the Jerry Lee Lewis version, which was a B-side to, you know, I can't remember if it was Great Balls of Fire or a whole lot of shaking going on, but it was the B-side to one of those big tracks. But yeah, this is, uh, I love Lennon's vocals on this too. Um and I think he's double tracked and like he's doing his own harmony during the verses. I used to think it was George Harrison doing that lower harmony in the verses, but it might be it might be Lennon doing both. Um, yeah, but I love when he goes up the nothing for me here, so I will disappear. And it's so good. And then going into the I still oh, I love that. Love yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. Um, the, the, and it's an interesting story about the, you know it's uh, lyrically it's 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 uh, it's interesting uh, compared to a lot of the other songs that, that Lennon and McCartney were writing around then. Well, if you say that it's a bit of a preview of "You've Got to Hide Your Love Away," I base that on uh, the lyrics revisit Lennon's familiar themes of alienation and inner pain. In mm. this song, he's at a party waiting for his girl to show up. When it becomes clear that she stood him up, he decides to leave rather than spoil the party for everyone else. So the, the the lyrics, the melody, kind of melancholy, uh, reminds me. No reply is a little yeah, bit that's like another that. One, yeah. I'm a loser was another yeah. one. So he was clearly getting into that vein around this yeah. time. That tapping that vein for inspiration in his songwriting, I would say. Uh, yeah. Originally, they wrote it uh, Lennon and McCartney uh, for Ringo Starr to sing. Oh, really? Yeah, I that, didn't know that. Yeah, that was the original idea, uh, was for Ringo, and then uh, I guess they decided. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't, because, yeah, uh, Lennon's singing on this is so great. Uh, last track on side one, originally the second cut on side two of Beatles for Sale, a Buddy Holly cover, Words of Love. Hold me close and... Tell me how you feel Tell me love is real mm-hmm. Words of love you Well, I, I actually uh, only recently I heard uh, uh, an earlier I think it was a BBC radio recording of them doing Words of Love um uh, probably a year before this recording and they are singing it more the way that Buddy Holly sang it in the original um, so it made me appreciate uh, their vocals even more on the, the studio recording because they, they changed it, they changed how like the flow of the vocals 
Um, and also George's uh, 12 string is really beautiful in this. And, and Ringo does the, uh, uh, where he's, he's playing, he's doing the drums. I mean, he plays drums, but he also overdubbed like playing on his knee oh. to get that kind of sound, which is something that Buddy Holly did not on Words of Love, but he did it on, uh, oh, uh, maybe Every Day. He did it on another song that that trick of of playing on on uh, on your knees, but he didn't necessarily do it on on his own version of Words of Love. But of course, the Beatles would have, you know, they would have picked up on it on the other recordings, so they incorporated it probably as a, a a tribute to him. They they love their buddy Holly. Uh, it was part of their stage show. This song between '58 and '62, uh, and Lennon and George Harrison did the the singing for that on stage yeah for Beatles for sale it's Lennon and McCartney who, yeah. who shared the vocal oh duties. that's interesting yeah. so George was on stage they they used to sing it together and oh. then George got the whoosh, when they did the recording and it was McCartney uh Beatles huge Buddy Holly fans uh just going down their their live set list from you know their early days as a stage act that'll be the day peggy sue every day it's so easy maybe baby think it over raining in my heart crying waiting hoping all those yeah. buddy holly tracks and a bit of trivia uh paul mccartney in 1976 bought all of the publishing rights to all of buddy holly's songs smart idea <laughs> so he, um. he was well served yeah, so. well, like I was saying that the uh, the vocals, it really, you you can hear how comfortable they are because they they're trusting themselves to to change the way that they're singing this song. You know, earlier they would have sang it like like Buddy, and uh, it just shows that that they, um, yeah, they really know at by this point they know. Uh, uh, how to make it their own, and and the Beatles were great for that. Where they, they would uh, they wouldn't change the 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 songs too much when they were covering a tune, but they would they would make it their own. It would become a, a Beatles song because they would they would change the the vocals ever so slightly and some of the music. Um, yeah, you gotta have that uh, that development, or you know, you would just you would try to, to do it as close as possible to the original. So that is side one of Beatles 6. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much, and I will look forward to having you back to talk about side two. Well, thank you for having me on the show again. You know, it's, uh, yeah. You bet. I'll talk to you again soon. So uh, always interested to know what you think. What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding Beatles 6? You can join the conversation in several ways on the episode page for this podcast on my website, romicast.com. Each episode has its own page at romicast.com. And at the bottom of each episode page, there is a comment section. And that is one way to uh, interact. We can also interact on Twitter or Instagram, Romanuk. Paul is the handle on both. And of course, there is good old Facebook. Just do a search on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there. Join us on the next episode of The Walrus Was Paul. Jerry Legere and I will dig into side two of Beatles 6. Until then, you take care. One, two, three, four. <laughs> 
never get tired of being Beatles. Oh, I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue.